0: This is Ben Smith. I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello people, it's Ben here. This is episode 142 of my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Yes, you know that already. Welcome along. Thank you very much for joining me. I hope you're all doing all right. Hope you're managing to navigate some path through the current shit show that is uh well a global pandemic, let's um call it what it is. Um, you know, hope you're managing to earn a living and all that stuff and stay well and remain positive in some way as we in the northern hemisphere head towards winter, the winter of our discontent maybe. I don't know, let's keep positive though. Send me an email, you know. Just get in touch be nice to hear from you. I never know who I'm talking to half the time. I know you're out there. Anyway, let me not blather on. This week, my guest is American photographer, Michael Christopher Brown. I will introduce Michael properly after a little bit of housekeeping, because you know there's got to be a little bit of housekeeping. First of all, I should tell you that this episode is sponsored by Charcoal Book Club because I want to tell you about the Chica Hot Springs Portfolio Review and Publishing Prize. If you don't yet know about that, So, Charcoal Book Club, as you will know, is the first and only Book of the Month Club dedicated exclusively to photo books. And if you don't know already, they have currently uh, opened a call for entries to the fifth annual Chico Hot Springs Portfolio Review and Publishing Prize, which I've already said. But obviously, because of the uncertainty over travel restrictions and gatherings for March 2021, which is when it's going to be happening, the Chico review has been restructured into a two-week, or even maybe it's a three-week, but it's an online masterclass and portfolio review. Why do I think it's three weeks all of a sudden? Anyway, it doesn't matter. The thing is, you can submit your work now through December 20th for a chance to be one of 64 artists invited to participate with Sean Davy, Alejandra Cartagena, Tanya Franco-Klein, Ron Jude, Susan Lipper, Christian Patterson, and twenty other respected photo book publishers and contemporary photography institutions. Participating artists received ten formal reviews by speakers and reviews over a two-week period so it's two weeks, and take part in artists, lectures, panel discussions and peer reviews. At the end of the event, one grand prize winner will be announced and their project will be published and distributed as a monograph by Charcoal Book Club. Additionally, this year, all participating attendees will have a selection of their work published and distributed in an opus catalogue by Charcoal Book Club. So for more information and to apply for that visit chicoreview.com, C-H-I-C-O-Review.com. If you haven't yet signed up to the exclusive fortnightly members-only episode of A Small Voice, which is available on the alternate Wednesdays in the month when there is no free main episode, you can do that at pod.fan to access special subscriber-only content, which includes a previous week's guest answering 20 bonus questions, catch-ups and check-ins with former guests, occasional specials from festivals, openings and events and more. I know it's a bit kind of depressing to hear that because that ain't happening right now, is it? But it will eventually in the future. You can also show your support and help fund the ongoing production of the podcast by signing up as a supporter of the show, which is three quid a month. Or you can even make a larger periodic occasional or one-off donation and you can do all that at pod.fan where you can easily find this podcast's page. Uh, leave me a positive review on iTunes, please. And if you want a new website, let me know, and I'll build you one with Squarespace so you don't have to bother. The email address is ben at bensmithphoto.com. So American photographer Michael Christopher Brown was raised in the Skagit, I don't. I think that's how you pronounce it, Valley, a farming community in Washington. After moving to New York City in 2005, he joined the Italian photo agency Neri in 2006. He then moved to Beijing, China in 2009, and over the next two years, put together a series of works from road and train trips across the country. In 2010, Michael began taking pictures with an iPhone, driving around eastern China in his Jinbei van, And since then, he's produced iPhone photographs in Libya, Egypt, Congo, Central African Republic, Cuba and Palestine. Michael's ability to capture critical moments with an iPhone has led to his involvement with Time, the New York Times Magazine and National Geographic's Instagram platforms. And in 2011, Michael spent several months in Libya photographing the Libyan revolution, exploring ethical distance and the iconography of warfare, He covered several battles along the coast, was ambushed several times in eastern Libya and injured twice in early March on the front line near the eastern town of Bin Jawad. He was shot in the leg during a government offensive. And six weeks later, while covering the siege of Misrata, he was injured by incoming mortar fire, losing nearly half the blood in his body and requiring two transfusions. His colleagues, Tim Hetherington and Chris Hondros were both killed in the same attack and Guy Martin was also badly injured. Michael returned to Libya twice in 2012 and was the subject of the Michael Mann-directed HBO documentary series Witness Libya. A contributing photographer at National Geographic since 2005, Michael has also contributed to the New York Times magazine and other publications. Since 2006, his photographs have been published in dozens of international publications. He joined Magnum Photos as a nominee in 2013 and was an associate from 2015 until leaving the agency in June 2017. His book, Libyan Sugar, won the Paris Photo First Photo Book Award and the International Centre for Photography's 2017 Infinity Award for Artist Book. In 2015 and 2016, Michael produced Paradiso, a multimedia project on the electronica music and youth scene in Havana, Cuba, part of which was exhibited in 2017 during the Cuba Is show at the Annenberg Space for Photography. In 2018, Michael released the book Yo Soy Fidel, which follows the cortege of Fidel Castro, former Cuban revolutionary and politician over a period of several days in 2016. That would be the funeral cortege, of course. Michael has also documented conflict in the Democratic Republic of the Congo since 2012 and was based in Goma from 2012 until 2014. A three book series of images from that time, both his and those he has collected from numerous Congolese photographers, is forthcoming, entitled Congo Sunrise. It's funny, I didn't mention it until after we'd stopped recording, but I once met Michael years ago, at the beginning of 2007 to be precise, in Brooklyn, where he was living, and I was visiting for a month or so just to get a bit of a New York fix, and we taught photography of course, And at at that time, Michael was at the beginning of his journey as a Nat Geo and jobbing editorial photographer. So i kind of watched with interest his career trajectory since then. And what an amazing story it's been for him since near-death experience, PTSD, fatherhood, so many things uh, he's been through. So I've been meaning to invite him onto the podcast for a long time, and for whatever reason, I didn't until now. But what fortuitous timing it turned out to be in the end, because as you will hear, quite by chance, I caught Michael in a particularly reflective mood at a time of several personal challenges and in the wake of a difficult kind of unsettling moment of controversy that he'd just been through, all of which he talks about candidly and openly in our chat. And I didn't dwell too long on the latter topic, which we tackled at the beginning, simply because there was a lot of other stuff I wanted to cover. But if you are intrigued to hear more about that firsthand from Michael's perspective, Let me tell you that he talks about that in more detail on the most recent episode of the podcast Visual Revolutionary. So if you want to hear more about that, go find it at Visual Revolutionary after you've listened to this wide ranging and super enjoyable chat I had with Michael Christopher Brown. I just uh, literally just this minute subscribed to your brand new podcast. So that's exciting. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Good stuff. I I um I wanted to ask you about it obviously because it's um sounds like a, an interesting uh endeavor. What was the thinking behind doing it? Um
1: the idea was um <sighs> Yeah, I do like an initial I recorded like an initial sort of intro that's uh that's uh before the first episode where I explained essentially the reason there were a few different reasons. Um one covid and the other one was the George Floyd aftermath and the other one was experiences I had had on my social media where uh where I was being criticized and attacked in a way that I felt was, um, that was misunderstood. There were a lot of sort of accusations and assumptions made, mm-hmm. not only with a project that I was working on at the time about Skid Row, but also with the George Floyd aftermath, when a photograph of mine was used on the cover of New York Magazine. There, uh, so many people assumed that I was on assignment and that what I did was wrong because I should have given the job to a black photographer or when I never even had an assignment in the first place. Mm. So they would just, um, so I sort of that entire time beginning in February, March I began having more in depth conversations with friends and colleagues about what was happening um, with my feed. But then later with, with COVID and, you know, us being all sequestered into our homes and, um, then with George Floyd and just, uh, thinking that, you know, many of us were so isolated at the time and, you know, I wasn't seeing many of my friends. So I thought, well, maybe, uh, you know, we must not be the only ones having these conversations. And, um, I just felt, you know, when you know, it felt like uh things were were collapsing in a way and I guess um uh, you know, again with the limitations of social media, I felt like uh there, there was a lot that I wanted to say and um and I realized that this was like a new something I had to do um, if anything for myself was to just um, sort out uh, why I do this mm. um, why i 'm a photographer and and to sort of um, share my friends and my colleagues and our experiences with the world
0: mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, let me mm-hmm. let me read it, because there's a little intro on your website. I began this podcast to have conversations with storytellers, creatives, healers, and others in search of what it all means, so we may understand why it is we do what we do and build stronger foundations of understanding, empathy, and expansion, both within and beyond our communities. So it sounds like you're in kind of reflective mood, really, generally. I mean, I, I, I suppose in a sense we all are... Um, I mean, I want to take those sort of three elements one by one, in a way, if, if I may. So, let's take the the COVID thing first. So, I, I guess what you seem to be saying is that you know that sense of isolation that a lot of us have had was what kind of drove you to to seek you know ways to connect with you know with people, and and I guess you know your own your own friends, your own network, the, the kind of people that you're going to be inviting onto your podcast. Was that the general kind of feeling exactly
1: yeah and I think part of that also grew from just moving to LA I lived in New York for 12 years um used it as a home base at least I was living in other other parts of the world as well during that time but much of my community was was there on the east coast and uh since moving here to LA a few years ago I've pretty much uh you know, a lot of the, the, the friends and colleagues that I would see quite frequently in New York, I never see. And, um, you know, I speak with uh, the ones I'm closest to. Uh, but I sort of, um, you know, began uh, growing a new community out here and really seeking that out. And at the same time, I was sort of uh, going through a transformation myself. I had PTSD, and I was sort of um, looking for any solution I could to overcome it. Um, you know, counseling and uh, um and body work and hypnotherapy and yoga and meditation and so many different kinds of things. And I just kept going down the list. And as I went down the list, I, um, my community began to grow. Hmm. And so I include healers in that because, um, healers in the, the, the podcast as people who I want to speak with because, uh, because it is, uh, so important, um, especially with the kind of photography that I've mostly done in these past 10 years, 15 years, um, which is, um, you know, generally in areas of conflict or somehow geopolitically challenged. And, um, you know, I think, uh, so many photographers, including myself, just, sort of come back and then we're on to the next and then we come back and then we're on to the next and I was sort of running around the world for so many years without really reflecting and understanding how these things were affecting me mm-hmm. on a deep level mm-hmm. and um, until it got to the point where you know, everything was boiling and it was spilling over the surface and, um, and it affected everything
0: I want to kind of come back to that really and I want to go into it in a bit more depth because it's obviously a hugely important part of your of your story because you've had a hell of a of a 10-year period, right? I mean, when we think about um say uh, take it from the beginning of uh, of 2011 and um you know through to let's say uh, next spring or something, that's your that's your 10 years. I don't know why it, 10 years doesn't really matter, but we think in these kind of blocks of time, I suppose and um yeah you've you've had some incredible experiences and some and some huge challenges not least um some of them very recently um so i want to sort of mm. pick up some of those threads but but just to get back to the, the kind of origins um the the other aspect we you were going to sort of talk about was well the george floyd thing um was that was that uh inextricably linked with what happened on social media because this is something i'm completely oblivious to so you might have to fill me in on what oh. happened really but you saying there were two different aspects one was one was the reaction that people had because you know the heat of all that and and and, and this kind of mm. extraordinary kind of time w- that we're living in with mm. um a lot of very strong feelings on um various different aspects of The world and and the way in which those those are sort of fought out on social media and one was the thing you did about Skid Row Um, so what were those, what happened because I mean a lot of people have this experience of, it's a really I imagine an incredibly unpleasant experience of being sort of called out uh, for things that you kind of don't feel that you're in any way really to blame for, or that people have somehow got the wrong end of the stick about something, which let's face it, happens uh, all too often in these in these situations.
1: Yeah, yeah, especially online, it's easy to sort of make assumptions and um, ramble on about folks. Um, you know, usually I have for years since joining, um, since uh, since opening up an Instagram account, I sort of all you, you know, always use it as a place to just load imagery occasionally here and there, and uh, mostly for fun and mostly just to kind of give um, whoever's following me a somewhat vague idea of what I'm up to. You know, I'm going to this place. Here I am. I photographed this today. You know, a lot of times I won't even have a caption. I'll just, you know, load an image. Um, overall, I could say what happened on my Instagram was, was great. It was really good for me. Uh, because in the past I always avoided comments. I just never really, um, s- sometimes I get into them, but, um, especially with the more critical ones, I just, uh, you know, I won't even look. And, um, what began happening on my account in the winter, I was working on a project in Skid Row in LA, uh, which I began working there almost a year ago. And um, I was shooting there pretty consistently for, for months. And there was, it was one image in particular, which is really when a lot of it began, which was a woman who, was, um, who I met on the street who was sorting through a trash bin looking for food. Now, this is at the very beginning of COVID. And L.A. had shut down. And so, many of the missions and organizations who were dropping food on Skid Row consistently every week or serving food were closed. So, throughout that week, I'd seen a number of people going through the trash and looking for things and, you know, these super long lines at the missions that were still open. And so, of course, when I saw this woman and introduced myself and began a conversation with her and, I mean she was one of the people who I photographed going through the trash, but I loaded this image onto my feed with like essentially no information other than the fact that I was, that I was there on assignment for Nat Geo. And, um, there was, there was one Instagrammer in particular who, who has always had a problem with my work and, um, eventually accused me of being a racist and, uh, you know, essentially, um, you know, contacted his friends and everyone he knew as he posted on my feed to come onto my feed and essentially leave comments and attack. Mm. And, um, so over the course of months, this happened a couple few times. Um, and, you know, eventually some other colleagues of mine who were friends of his also came onto my feed and were critical of other posts. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, people have a right to be critical of anything they want. But the, the criticism was, was such that it was, there were a lot of assumptions being made about my intentions. And it was somewhat surprising because some of these comments were coming from colleagues and, um, who I had known for many years who know that I have good intentions you know but yet they were still coming on my feed on you know and um lashing out in this way over photographs that that they saw as being uh somewhat somewhat destructive which again they have a right to and uh so anyway th- this that was kind of you know the part one where these were these instances happening um but it was enough to sort of bring me to the point where I realized that okay, the fact that this is happening among our community, which is composed um with a lot of people who have spent time traveling around the world around many, many many groups of you know, all kinds of people and have been exposed to to this Range of life and the fact that it's happening in our community is uh, is unacceptable because we should be people because of our experiences we should be you know among the kinds of people who are more more understanding or at least willing to um, reach out to a colleague uh, before um, making something into a very public incident and This includes colleagues of mine who were calling themselves my friends who were being critical on my Instagram without even contacting me first, Mm. um, which, of course, are not friends. And uh, the Instagrammer who initiated these attacks even threatened me, you know, and essentially said if he was here in L.A., he would beat the shit out of me. Mm. And so, so, again, it was just this idea of, like, my now being in LA and now being at home because of COVID and having a partner and having a daughter and having less work, uh, because of everything happening and spending, um, spending a lot of time on the phone talking about everything happening with, with, with my friends and colleagues, it just really sort of was a sign for me that, there was a shift happening, and something was happening, and um, I felt like I was sort of, you know, drowning in uh, in um, you know this this cauldron of shit, for lack of a better phrase, mm. and so I wanted to speak, and I wanted to share, and so that's part of the reason why this you know this podcast started
0: i guess and i guess the, the george floyd thing that came in the wake of this other criticism did it that was a um, that was a sort of knock on from that once you'd gone out and you know as a lot of photographers did went and kind of covered the protests but as you say yeah it was assumed that you uh, as you said before um had taken an assignment or something when in fact you were just doing it for your own purposes
1: yeah yeah you know i mean at the end of the day i'm like, I'm still the perfect target. You know, I'm a white American male. You know, there's a lot of people out there who are just waiting for me to fuck up, you know, to somehow train wreck and so they can call me out. So, with George Floyd, it was when when that happened in the streets of L.A. were filled with marches and protests and a lot was happening. I was out there every day photographing it. And there was also a lot of talk at the time from from many people who are saying, Oh, you know, we, this, you know, the story should be photographed by, uh, you know, the POC, the black photographers, you know, we don't have a right to be out there shooting. We can be there in support, but, and I'm thinking, give me a fucking break. This is such bullshit. You know, one, I'm an American. It doesn't matter. Like, of course, I have no understanding of the black experience. I can't speak to that, but I'm an American. I'm a photographer. This is in my city. This is happening on my streets, you know, that I pay taxes and so I can fund what's happening in the city. I'm going to be out there taking pictures. Hmm. So I'm out there the entire time and at the end of the week, um, uh, New York Magazine, they're going to run an article about the protests and, you know, the aftermath and... They had hired, my understanding was they had hired exclusively black photographers for the issue. So they hadn't hired any white people. And, you know, my picture was, was, I guess, a simple picture, um, somewhat optimistic, maybe. Uh, But when it ended up on the cover, immediately the New York Magazine feed just, you know, became filled with comments about... You know, um, why they used a white photographer in this time, so insensitive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Why that photographer was on assignment. Oh, that photographer should have given the job over to, you know, a black photographer. Oh, it just so happens that, you know, it's this photographer who has already received a lot of criticism about the Skid Row work. And so then on my feed, it began happening. People began, you know, the same sort of commentary and like initially I wrote a response that was very defensive um, that was essentially like, look, you know, this was not an assignment, da, da 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 because I was getting these comments about it being a job, and then I erased it because I figured, you know what? What can I say? You know? And there's a lot of people hurting, there's a lot of people upset, there's a lot of people who are just um you know cannot really hear uh you know a defense of any kind. Mm. And so I thought okay, um you know, how can I listen more? And how can I respond in a way that will show this community that I believe in them and that I'm on their side. I'm you know a part of their team. So so I began that by giving the money that I made from the cover over to an organization that supports uh POC photographers and then for the next couple weeks, uh, once a day, I loaded the image of, um, you know, the work of a POC photographer, a black photographer whose work I respected and who inspired me, you know, as a way to sort of uh, give voice to, more voice to their work and, um, and, you know, I didn't see, I didn't see a lot of other people doing that, Mm. Um, there were other colleagues in mine who were doing that that was great but um, for example the guy who left a comment on my feed calling me a racist you know I never saw him load or share the work of other photographers you mm. know so anyway it was just um, you know it was also a point that I realized okay I have to look at my Instagram in another way now. You know, it's no longer a place where I could just sort of play and cast out an image without without the proper context. If it is a, if it is a more challenging image, and so in that way, it was also good for me because it sort of um, showed me that okay, you you know you you have not a massive amount of influence, but you have a little bit of influence, and you have to be careful about that it was kind of a rookie mistake in a way, Mm. but it was also that I hadn't worked in the United States for a long time in a way, you know, in a community that is, that is like Skid Row that is so challenged and just so left behind and so damaged. And, uh, and it's very hard to work there. And, show imagery that 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 is going to not only get the word out, but somehow benefit them. Mm. And while not being, um, while not exposing them to a point where it's like seen as um, something negative because, you know, the thing is everyone I photograph there, I speak with, I ask their permission, but, because most of them have mental health issues, um, there are constant questions of, um, of what's the word I'm looking for, of, um, even if someone gives you their permission, the question can be, how present are they?
0: Yeah, you know, are they really so qualified to give place? consent? Yeah.
1: That's the word I was looking for, consent.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you, actually, you know, you should really explain very briefly what Skid Row is, because it's, it's sort of entered the, uh, the vernacular. You know, we, we, we use it as a term, mm. but um, maybe some people don't actually really realize, you know, there is an actual place. What, where is it and what is, what is it? Yeah. So Skid Row is like a
1: 50-block area of um, Los Angeles, right downtown. And it used to be kind of the center of the downtown area, where the train station was uh, before they moved it. And this was kind of, uh, the area where after the civil war and, you know, throughout the late 19th and early 20th century, people began coming there, um, on the trains, hobos and such, and there sprang up, uh, motels and restaurants and places. It was really kind of a happening part of town. And then over time that sort of declined, you know, the city moved, uh, the train station into another part of downtown. And then, like in the 70s and the 80s, with the deinstitutionalization here in California when they closed a lot of psychiatric hospitals, many of the patients ended up on the street. And then in the 80s, with the crack epidemic, um, the neighborhood became uh, even more saturated with people who had just essentially self-destructed Mm. And, um, now it is sort of, if you're homeless in LA and homeless and mentally ill, and really how can someone be homeless for an extended period of time without, without having some kind of mental illness as well, this is sort of the center of LA for you because it's where the services are. it's, It's where the food is, it's where you can get clothes, shelter, everything is free and so, um you have a lot of people who are living in tents on the street uh many thousands of people and um essentially someone described it as an open air you know as an outdoor mental asylum, so the kind of scenes you can see there um are can be very disruptive and traumatic, even just witnessing some of the scenes um, that you see just happening there on the street. And so when I first moved here to L.A., I drove through there, and I was, you know, blown away by what I saw. that It was happening here in L.A. and happening in America. And, um, and then it was really just last year when I began, you know, the first year that I was in L.A., year and a half in L.A. I was really just working on healing myself and, you know, getting back together, even though I was doing jobs. But working in Skid Row um, i was ready to work there when I was when I was healthy, and you know, part of the reason I was also drawn to it was because of my own experience with mental illness. And so, even though I'm not schizophrenic, you know, I don't have severe mental illness. Fortunately, I could really identify with with um, some of the folks I met down there. And I'm still planning on uh, continuing the project here when I finish. I'm working on a few mm. uh, photo books at the moment, mm. but I'm planning on heading back down there here in the next month or so.
0: Yeah. Well, I definitely want to find out more about what, what things you've got on the go because I know you've got book projects uh, you know, in, in progress and all that. But when you talk about your own mental health, you're talking about your PTSD, I'm assuming, and that's been a kind of, yeah, an ongoing challenge really for, for some time. I guess it's... Um it's been a long process. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to drag you through um, the stuff that you've uh, had to talk about so many times, because to sort of put it in a nutshell, um, in 2011, you went to Libya without really necessarily realizing you were going to end up in a war. But you did end up in a war uh, and um, you, you you were very badly injured in the same uh, explosion that killed Tim Hetherington and Chris Honduras. And uh, an injured guy, Martin, as well, who's been on the podcast back in the day. And so, I mean, I, what I think is more interesting to, to hear from you about is actually the aftermath of that and this this process that you're referring to, really. Because you know you've you've said that it took you quite a long time to really realize that there was even anything wrong with you. i mean how how did it sort of manifest itself and you know and, and you know at what point did you kind of finally start to realize that you know your whatever behavior um, you were sort of displaying wasn't really strictly normal?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, well. My behavior was never violent, fortunately. Mm. Um, it was never at the point where I was, you know, threatening people and um, completely out of control. Though it manifested itself in the form of anger and uh, dissociation, and and actually with the latter, it was almost um, worse than the anger because, of course, part of the problem with um, with this association is that <laughs> you are separated from yourself, so you're not centered in your body. You're not conscious with what's happening now, so you can't learn from your mistakes because you don't understand what you did, and a lot of times I would forget what I did Or I wouldn't understand what I did. So, um, you know, this manifested itself just uh, in my relationships, Hmm. um, at work, in my personal life, uh, with my family, my friends, my partner. Um, There were things I did that I didn't, uh, that I would learn about after when they told me, you realize you said this or you realize you responded in this way. And I would say, what do you mean? I would, and they would say, yes. And so at some point it you know, I never really woke up from that until I lost everything I was working for. You know, it had to be something that was, that was so important for me where I could, where it would be like a, you know, a wake up call. Mm. And, in that way, it was a kind of intervention and it happened. um, Well, I mean, without going into a lot of detail, I was, I was at a, you know, at the highest point so far in my career. I was doing pretty well, getting a lot of jobs. um, And I was getting a lot of notice, you know, and um, I was making money. It was good. I was having fun And, but at the same time, I just was outside myself, so I wasn't able to always, uh, get along with people. There were, you know, a couple of jobs I had, one in particular where I really had a falling out with an art director and, um, you know, raising my voice and being rude and not understanding what was happening and blaming, you know, things on other people. And uh so it was, you know, and at that time I was a, I was an associate photographer at Magnum and um uh, which was an amazing opportunity, you know. It was really I was really in a privileged uh position. And uh but you know, again, because I was outside myself and things would happen and I would be told that I did this and I did this and I would just apologize. I would say, Oh, but no, look, I'm sorry. You know, I didn't understand, but then it would happen again because I didn't realize what I was really doing. Um, because of the trauma, because when you have heavy trauma, it's, it keeps you in the past. You know, anxiety is about the future. Trauma is about the past and it's, I uh I mean it was really like five years at four or five years after Libya that it really began to hit. So around 2015, wow. 2016. Hmm. And so yeah, it it's um my my career began to sort of nosedive. And after Magnum and then My, my partner, Lauren, uh, she nearly left me because we had moved in together and she began to notice things. And I said, what do you mean? I don't understand what you're talking about. And she's like, oh, well, do you know that you do this, that, you know, it was kind of a Jekyll and Hyde scenario. Right. And I had no idea. So, so I... So I went to see a, um, a couple a couple counselors, and you know they both said that I that I was having symptoms of the PTSD. I didn't have the nightmares, but I had um, many of the other symptoms, and so that's when I began getting treatment mm. in spring of twenty seventeen. Yeah. So for the first like six months or so, I didn't do anything work related. I, I did have like one job that I had to do. But otherwise, I was doing yoga every day and meditating, and going to the hypnotherapist and the counselor, and trying to understand what I was, mm. what I was going through. And but nothing really seemed to be helping. So eventually, I had to go on antidepressants, um, which at least helped me see things in a positive way, where everything was positive. So there was nothing that I could, uh, that I could complain about. Essentially. Mm. Because you know the trauma's stored in the body, and so there was a hypertension that would manifest itself in the form of hypervigilance, where I was always looking around and kind of on my edge, and um, and so the antidepressant sort of helped calm me and help sort of helped me see the world with rosy sunglasses. Then eventually I had to come off of those. So
0: so anyway, I'm rambling. But, but uh, No, not at all. It's really interesting, Michael. It throws up so many other questions. It's been a real questions. journey. Yeah. And do they have any understanding as to why there's this kind of delayed reaction? Because after Libya, you spent quite a lot of time in Congo. You did a lot of work there, and you sort of were more or less based there for, for some of the, that time. But what you seem to be saying is that it didn't really hit you until after that period was over.
1: Yeah, which is a really common scenario. Um, the colleague, friend of mine, Corey Richards, who's a photographer for Nat Geo, a uh, climber, who was in a big accident on Everest. He was in an avalanche, and uh, he was nearly killed. And it was five years later that he began experiencing this really bad PTSD. Mm. There's another guy um, who I met online not long ago who was a, who's a former Navy SEAL and uh it was more or less the same you know for him five years after the fact it was this certain amount of time had to pass uh before yeah the processing became Mm. became necessary um before the manifestation was there i mean you know just when we look at uh what happened in libya um one, of course, I don't consider myself a war photographer. I went there for other reasons uh, that were more tied to the creation of the Arab Spring and why that existed. Um, of which I don't know if we can really define exactly why I think it was a number of factors. But um, the uh, there were many things that I identified with that I'd seen in Egypt on the TV when I was living in China, initially their entire square, which were about human dignity and, um, human rights and freedoms, which, you know, as an American, these things have always been very, and as a human, these things have always been very, very important. So I, you know, I really connected with what was happening there. Um, and, When I arrived in Libya, I sort of, you know, I was so naive, I sort of expected that it would be more like Egypt. And within, you know, a week or, you know, a couple weeks, there was already a front line and bodies were coming back. And so, you know, just my natural curiosity or anyone curious about the situation might want to see where, where the bodies are coming from and what's happening. So I just became, you know, pulled into the war. But... That year, uh, I mean, I was injured on a couple different occasions. Um, in March, I was hit by an AK-47 bullet in my leg. And then I went back into Benghazi, limping around for like a week and going to the hospital every day to get it, you know, drained and treated. And then a little over a month later, in the same incident that, that killed Hetherington and Andros and injured Guy Martin and killed you know, and injured a bunch of other Libyans. I like lost nearly half the blood of my body and had like six pieces of shrapnel. I found out last year that I actually had another piece in my wrist that I didn't even know about. It was causing me yeah. a lot of problems. So I, You know, in my wrist, my arm, my shoulder, my chest. and um, But also like multiple ambushes at some point actually the following year I was there for men's journal with a writer and we we were briefly kidnapped. Um, So there was just a lot, there was a lot of shit. And I think like it wasn't only that, it was also just seeing hundreds of bodies. It was seeing intergenerational trauma happened when, when they dragged Muammar Gaddafi into this meat locker in Misrata and had his body on display for three days. Uh, you know, the tribes of Libya essentially said, this guy is not a Muslim. We don't have to bury him within a day. I mean, look what he did to our country. Mm-hmm. And so thousands of Libyans would be lined up outside in a line and there would be grandfathers coming in with their grandsons. These little kids just walking around the body of Gaddafi. And these things were almost more disturbing now having an understanding of intergenerational trauma and the way that trauma works. These things are actually more disturbing to me now than just, than the bodies and the other things. Um, and a strange thing about the bodies and the gore and the blood is that, um, you know, for some reason, like, I'm sure they, they all had an effect on me. But from a pretty young age, I would see quite a bit of, um, sort of open wounds and cuts and blood on the human body because my father's a physician, he's a surgeon. And so he would always around our house, I would come into the house and I would see these Polaroids around the house, which were sort of operations in progress or, uh, case studies. And, you know, like it would be like, uh photograph of like a neck with a bunch of stitches and then you know the neck is open or you know the nose is completely open and it's off and um which could be seen as being a horrific image but from a very young age i just saw that as being part of the body Mm. and uh you weren't distressed but it. it was also yeah but it was also shocking in the sense that these scenes are happening in this place and um these are scenes of war that I'm sure happened in any war. And I felt like I was seeing them for the first time because in a way I was, because we we rarely see these images. Actually, we never see these images mm. in our uh, mass media. And so well, when I made the book, that's yeah. why.
0: I yeah, when you made the book, Libyan Sugar, you, you included a lot of those kind of very gnarly pictures, like you say, the sort of thing that would certainly not make it into the mainstream media by any measure and, and wouldn't even make it into quite a lot of photographers' edits as well, I guess on the grounds that, you know, one has to consider, you know, the ethics of showing that kind of stuff or or the purpose. What what are your kind of thoughts in reflect, on reflection as to that decision to include those kind of images? Do you still think about it a little bit?
1: Yeah, I still think about it, but I do firmly believe still that that it was necessary to include those because for me then and even still now these are the real pictures of war this is what this is what war i mean war looks like a lot of things but why are we so why are we so against seeing these kinds of images publicly why are we so against this kind of When we can show images of elephants in the African savanna being completely, um, having been slaughtered and having been de-skinned and hung from things and, you know, chopped up, we can show these pictures. We can even show these pictures in National Geographic, but we can't show these, these pictures of humans. Of course we can't, but we're part of nature and this is how things look. This is how things appear. This is how things actually look. And this is what happens in war. Mm. And, of course, I mean, it's, it's you know, I've said this a hundred times. And, you know, other people said it hundreds of times before me. But this is one of the reasons why the Vietnam War uh, came to a close. It was just the, you know, the power of the imagery used by um You know, that was being made by photographers who had complete access, who were showing American soldiers being just, you know, blown up. And I mean, imagine if we saw these kinds of images on the front of the New York Times.
0: Yeah, yeah. America
1: was at war in Iraq and Afghanistan. It would be done. It would be over the next day. Mm. And um, so it's been made inappropriate by, I see these kinds of images as being made inappropriate, largely as a result of government propaganda because even when you go to cover say American soldiers in Afghanistan, Iraq and other places, you have to sign these forms that say, you know, if you happen to be in a situation where a soldier's killed or injured, you know, essentially you can't show any of these pictures unless you've had the permission from them and their families. And I don't even know how it is now. It may not even be possible anymore. Mm. But why is that? And the government sort of, you know, the military sort of sold that as, um, well, it's inappropriate for the family. It's not only inappropriate, it's wrong because you're showing, you know, the son or daughter and this is blah, 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 which I get. I understand. But I also think when you're there killing a lot of people and when you're there sacrificing our soldiers' uh, lives that... This is, of course, an important situation, and um, I. It's wrong to hide these images. I think of uh, the mother of Emmett Till when Emmett Till was was killed, and um, she she allowed the public and the world to see her son, who had been uh, you know essentially slaughtered by these white guys and uh why did she do that? I mean, look how his son looks- well, Why did she do that? Because she wanted to show the world this is what happens. This is real this happens and and so, when I think of like you know the fighters that i that i you know the people who were killed in the book i when I think of their mothers and their family mothers, sure. Um, they they would, you know, prefer not to have their child in the book looking in that way after having been killed. But then I think of my mother or the mother of Emmett Till. I know my mother well enough where I know that she uh, she would allow if it was a photograph of me with half of my head gone because I was killed by some angry Trump supporter or something, why would she want to hide that? Hmm. I mean, one, because I don't belong to her. I'm my own human, but also, uh, these things happen. And I just, you know, I feel like especially now in an age of just so much bullshit, And so much, uh, so many lies, we don't know what's real and what's not. And it's just so important to show the way the world actually looks. And on Skid Row, that's, that's, that's sort of the, the line I've held to while working down there too. Sure. At the end of the day, the mother of the woman who was going through the trash bin looking for food would probably not want her daughter seen that way, you know? But we could say that about any photograph and the you know, the purpose of like having that photograph there, which is a photograph that I kept on my feet, that is not a great photograph at all. But it's there for the reason of informing the public of what is happening because of the coronavirus and that the situation is serious enough in LA where while there's millions of people who are worried about the toilet paper and whether or not Trader Joe's or Whole Foods is going to have enough food. Here's this woman going through the trash because we closed our missions. And because some of these organizations aren't going down because everyone is so afraid of the virus. And so I think if we understand every photograph in context, there's no inappropriate photograph. Mm. I think all photographs have, 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 um, are important to see in context, in the right context, and um, which, anyway, going back into this, the initial Instagram outlash um, about that photograph I shot on Skid Row, my mistake was not not providing context initially. Um. Anyway, I'm rambling again, man.
0: No, you're not, man. I'm I'm interested. Give it because, back to you. Well, the thing is that we could oh, you know, we could go really into a rabbit hole with some of these issues that that you've kind of touched upon and, uh, you know, it's definitely fundamental to kind of the way in which the world is uh, going at the moment, but I'm f- afraid that we just disappear down there for an hour or two and I want to talk about Keep it moving. so many other things. Yeah, well, I mean, cool. and it also you reminded me that when we were talking about the images um, in your book that I'm um, Christoph Bang at the Dow he, he sort of addressed that issue very directly. He did a book called war porn, which, you know, yeah. was, was intended, do- you know, specifically to, to really address that head on where he put mm-hmm. a lot of those kinds of images of his own in a book. Uh, and, you know, specifically to sort of, I don't know, bring those kind of issues to light, I suppose, and to challenge people, you know, to, I suppose, think about their own kind of motivations for wanting to see them or, you know, I don't know uh, quite how to articulate. You probably know that book.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen the book.
0: Mm. Um, But I wanted to quote you from some of the text that's in uh, Libyan Sugar. Um, There is an awareness in war that can never be touched, heard, smelled, seen or understood by any but those who go looking for it a chance to exist outside oneself, an experience one is shown in pieces but never in full, and it does not end when one leaves. The wounds open doors to an insight you never would have had otherwise in making this book. There was a sense of the fleeting nature of this awareness and of wanting to hold that experience by its neck and examine it before time took it away. Uh, That seemed almost like the encapsulation of your motive for doing the book I'm, I'm wondering if you know what conclusions you drew or what learnings you kind of took away from that process of of kind of holding it by its neck and examining it um there was really
1: an urgency a strong urgency that i needed to um, it was almost cathartic i mean it was cathartic in a way where i'm carrying around this you know, these experiences and um, memories and what I would later understand as being uh, trauma and I was unloading it unloading this into the book. I originally I sort of um the following year as I was looking at these pictures I realized that I had a book and then but then at the same time the photographs looked seemed very empty because they were images of war that looked like any other photographs of war, but, but the book is not, uh, most of the photographs are from the Libyan revolution, but the book is not about the revolution at all. The book is about war and the experience of going to war. And what I was carrying around inside of me is what, that is what poured into the book. And that was the, um, that was the motivation I felt like I had something that I could, share that I could say about war and about life. And so I you know, I began, you know, just going through all these emails and notes that I had made and communications with friends and trying to find the words and the phrases and, you know, the ideas that, that, that really captured the way that I felt at the time, what I wanted to say about it. And, um, and it felt fleeting it felt like I had to do it then while it was fresh you know in the same way I've been working on um not like a well a book though it's not a photo book I've been writing a lot you know in these past year and a half couple couple years just about some of these experiences um uh you know as a way to just get it out uh because I may forget I'm getting older so who knows you know, once I get to like my mid forties and fifties, no, who knows? I, yeah, I had, because of the PTSD I had a little bit of cognitive, cognitive decline, which I have sort of, uh, reversed, um, in a sense with, with, um, certain things. But, um, but yeah, it's, you know, the same kind of urgency I had that is also coming out now and also with this, with this Congo project from years ago. There's an urgency, you know, to really get it out. It's actually it's one of the one of the good things that that uh, came out of COVID is me finally getting these Congo books done because mm. <laughs> it's just so much work with the photos and the text that that I don't know if I would have even gotten them done any other time in my life because I'm you know it's hard for me to sit still sometimes.
0: <laughs> so, what is the plan uh, with that? I think you've got a set of three mo- different monographs, you know, as one overall uh project can you t- tell me a little bit about what the kind of thinking was behind that.
1: Yeah, so so a year after Libya I began working and living in Congo and I was working and living there on and off for like three, four years after that. And um it's been a couple of years since I was there last. Um hopefully I'll go back soon. But from the experiences I had there um uh, just sort of grew like another body of work that was centered on the conflict in the eastern part of the country. And while I was there photographing my own, you know, photographing on assignment and my own projects, I was also collecting the work of other, um, of Congolese. And one of the bodies of work I collected is from the photojournal, of a Congolese commando um, who was killed in action a few years, a few years ago in 20, actually six years ago um, alongside a friend of mine, um, this colonel in the Congolese army and they were ambushed. But before that happened, I, I made a series of interviews with her. And so the book will be um, the photographs that were in her album, which are, Photographs of her in the army and photographs of her at home with her baby and other things Um, as well as these quotations you know from her and this interview with her so that's kind of the first layer of the Congo project is um, photographs of a Congolese of a citizen who also happens to be in the military Um, and then the next layer is like um, while I was living in Goma I collected the work of like six Congolese photographers. And this is kind of the beginning of a project that I want to expand. But, um, I mean, there's a lot of great work in there. Now, these are photographers who work out of the photo studios, uh, where you can process your film. And a lot of times you'll see them on the street. You'll be lined up on the street. And, uh, the way that it's worked in Congo is you pull up in your car and, if you need a photographer for a high school portrait or for a funeral or for a wedding or whatever, these guys get in the car with you and go. And so I met some of these guys. I went to their homes and they all, they all kept their photographs in the same way, which was that most of them had no negatives, but they had thousands of prints and they would keep them in these cardboard boxes. And so I would just spend hours going through these prints and I collected, um, hundreds from each of them. But the, the, the second body of work is more focused on one of the photographers, Moyes, Moyes. And, um, it's a really good example of, uh, something that I remember Chuck close, the American artist saying about photography, which is that photography is the only art form in which we have accidental masterpieces. Hmm. Um, Not to say that this Congolese photographer, Moyes, uh, was creating accidental masterpieces, but he was a photographer who at the end of the day was largely untrained and he was shooting photographs so he could make money and also out of his own interest. And a lot of his pictures are just photographs of whatever he sees, but they're shot in a way that are very straightforward, you could say. So many of the pictures are not interesting, but then you arrive at these images um, that are just mind-blowing, beautiful photographs. And it's such strong work. And so this is like the second layer of the project in that he's Congolese, but he's also a photographer. So he's like an insider sort of looking at the inside from the outside. And then, the later after that is me like essentially the white hunter you know the white american hunter coming into congo in the same way all of the other white people have come uh, throughout the years and looking at the place through foreign eyes from like a 40,000 foot view and focused on focused on conflict and what was happening there uh between you know the over 100 militia groups, and uh, just all the problems it was causing. But the perspective that I had initially is not the same perspective now. Uh, Many of the photographs I have in my book are, you could see them as being negative, um, where I'm trying to project this negative view of Congo. But in fact, the, the text that I'm including in the book sort of will reverse that interpretation. Um, So I'm calling the project uh, Congo Sunrise because it's all in Eastern Congo. And Eastern Congo in Swahili is Mashariki Congo. And Mashariki, isn't it, is a word from Arabic that means sunrise or the dawn. And the sunrise also, of course, relates to, you could say, a more optimistic view. Like in the U.S., we have the Sunrise Movement you know, happening now, which is like an environmentally based movement. Um, and so sunrise Congo is like this new view of Congo that is not just like this art of darkness, uh, colonialist Western perspective, but it's, you know, this more positive view. I'm giving you the inside view of Congolese female soldier and, we can now see the congolese military and in a larger sense the african militaries in a new way that is not just like this way that we may think of them as being and we can really connect with her and at the same time we we can really connect with with the congolese and the africans through the work of the congolese photographer who is basically like invisible in a lot of the situations he photographs because he's one of them. And so, you know, in the kinds of photographs he records are more positive, are more, uh, real in a sense, um, than the kind of work that I was making at the time, which was, which was that I kind of had an agenda in the sense that I was so focused on the conflict um, that I wasn't, you know, capturing the entire the entire spectrum.
0: Mm. So it sounds like uh, this is a, a good example of, you know, kind of the passage of time that you've allowed has really had a big influence on the way in which you've, you've actually ended up doing it. Because if you tried to bring this to, to fruition years ago, you know, so shortly after you'd done it, it would be a very different project altogether.
1: Yeah, and I would have looking at it now, if I would have made it then looking at it now in retrospect, it would have been more inaccurate Mm. and it would have been a, you know, a perspective that was nothing new. That was sort of, um, you know, the same way that, that, that other people have, uh, presented the Congo in the past, which is not, um, necessarily a bad way, but at the same time, I don't know if it's, help to expand the conversation of what's happening in the Congo mm. you know beyond this kind of like heart of darkness war torn place of no hope and it really is um an anomaly, anomaly in Africa it's really the, the only country in Africa that that is really um, with the scale of war and destruction and mm. sort of yeah. um
0: it's, yeah. it's, uh, it strikes me that it's a hell of a place to choose to go after the experience that you'd uh, just come, come out of, you know, I mean, in this sort of, uh, well, unbeknownst to you, this sort of post-traumatic st- state, and then you, cho- you know, I thought you might have um, wanted to seek out uh, peace and tranquility for a while, but you ended up going <laughs> to the opposite, quite a choice, really. Yeah, it began
1: as an assignment, so it was like, a, well, it was a larger assignment, so, so uh, Kira Pollock at the time was it? Um, she was a photo editor and she was at Time Magazine and she called me and she said, look, we're working on our first issue about uh, wireless um, phones and um, electronics. And she's like, if you want to photograph some of the stories in this issue, that would be great. Also, if you have ideas for things, that would also be great. So she... She sent me a list of uh, the stories and a few of them were in Africa and I was very interested in those. And I thought, well, maybe there's something else in Africa that I can do. And of course, after a quick uh, search on Google, I um, learned a lot more about the mines and where these minerals are coming from. And of course, Congo is crucial for so many of the, the electronics we have. Um, because of the minerals coming out of the country. So I proposed a story on Congo, not knowing how difficult it would be to get in mm. and, you know, to work there. But that's how it began. Yeah. It began with that assignment and then I stayed on for like another, yeah. you know, month or so before coming back and then returning.
0: And you worked with a phone, did you not?
1: I mean, yeah, shop. completely with the phone. Yeah. I still work actually mostly with the phone.
0: Yeah, I mean, you you had throughout your time in in Libya. Um, I think I think you'd sort of you'd sort of experimented before that, but I think Libya was the first time you really started using it in earnest. Um, which again, right. it was sort of serendipity in a way, or sort of sheer sheer kind of uh, coincidence. You, you you dropped and broke your camera, and you kind of in in a way you sort of were left with no choice. So that is a, a pretty amazing piece of of fate, in a way.
1: Well, I had a choice. Right, right. I was shooting mostly with my camera, but I was using it in the beginning of the war, and then when my camera broke, I thought, you know, the phone was still so novel at that time, and I enjoyed using it. Um, There were other cameras from other colleagues that I could have used, but I was unfamiliar with them. Right, right. just... Kept going with the yeah. phone, but the, <laughs> but I actually lost quite a few images with the phone because the application I was using at the time, because the iPhone at that time was still very new, mm. it uh you know the camera app was not accurate, like the the shutter was not so instantaneous, and so I used a program called Hipstomatic, which was instantaneous, but it would often crash, and you could only shoot one photo every. 15 seconds because it had to process mm. and but a lot of times in the heat in the desert it would just crash and I would lose the picture or you know the handful of images I shot which was very frustrating
0: mm, that's frustrating and uh, uh, you were yeah, well, in a way you were sort of a bit of a trailblazer there because um of course here now it's it's so much more common a lot, lot more people are working with them and we're seeing kind of Time magazine covers and stuff that have been shot shot with them but with the Congo thing it had another level of symbolism in a way but of course because it was directly related to the story that you were covering in the sense that, you know, that the minerals that they that are being mined are being used to actually make, you know, components for the very tool that you're using. So it had this kind of nice, this nice sort of significance, I guess. Yeah. So in terms of other stuff that you've been working on or currently still working on, I saw that on your website, there was a, this ongoing project birth which is currently sort of under wraps you're not sharing it but you mentioned briefly some of the sorry s- no not at all I, I completely i completely understand it's just as a slight sort of tease tease there but you you sort of in a way you've shared a little kind of taster uh, of it on your instagram feed and and it's really about some of the personal stuff that you've you know been going through recently for start your partner uh, lauren had um brain surgery which in itself sounds dramatic to say the least there's there's no such thing mm. as brain surgery that isn't dramatic and that's part of it mm. is she okay i mean what's the sort of situation she's
1: okay mm. yeah thanks for asking yeah she's doing very well she um she was having headaches for days at the end of june and then eventually became so bad where um she had a number of other Symptoms and had essentially lost control of her body. So I called nine one one, and when she arrived in the hospital, they did a scan and they saw that she had a five centimeter wide cavernoma, which is a kind of cluster of uh, vessels in the brain that was bleeding, and it could have exploded and immediately killed her. It was bleeding, and it was already causing a little bit of brain damage. And so they did like an emergency operation that was about seven hours long and. She fortunately she came out of it very well, but she was in a very fragile state and you know, and it just really put us all through the ringer, of course, because we were, you know, with the talks I was having with the physicians, they're like, Look, you know, you, you never know how these things are gonna go, you know. And you don't know if it's going to improve her or if it'll get worse or if she'll live or die or whatever and uh so that was yeah that was in early July. So Mm. it's been, you know, more than three months now that where, uh, life is different, but she's coming, she's back. She's really very, very lucky. She's still healing. She's still recovering. She's not, she's not completely the same. Uh, but I mean, you know, becoming the same, what does that even mean anyway? Mm. You know, there are things that, that, that it's really interesting. You know, she has the same personality and she's the same Lauren. Um, there are some things that are no longer there that I don't miss, (laughs) you know? And there are new things that are awesome. So, so it's, so, you know, it's interesting. Um, the kind of, the kind of cavernoma she had, they say that it can be congenital. They're usually congenital, but that they can grow with hypertension And our relationship in the beginning after we moved in was really intense and it was largely because of my PTSD. And so I went down a rabbit hole multiple times thinking like how I might have, you know, caused this. And a friend of mine, close friend of mine said something very, um, very insightful, which was that um, have you ever thought that you two, you two met that you two came together in life because not only you had a brain injury but Lauren did as well and that maybe you know part of you part of you connecting as a couple was so you could be there for each other and i thought that was really interesting like um you know my understanding of just you know my own you know journey through trauma and healing of my brain and of my health um has allowed me to look at her situation in a whole different way yeah it's like i become you know yet again changed in a way that 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 is that is not about where before you know in our relationship i was sort of not as not as present not as um I was aware of her needs as much as my own I mean I think that we can all relate to this but it's you know it's brought everyone closer together and the birth of our daughter that did the same thing
0: um, It sounds like you've and, had an opportunity to sort of uh, you know almost uh, support each other in some in some ways because um, you know she sort of st- st- stuck by you uh, you know and at times when you know you weren't actually quite yourself and, um, I guess, you know, like sort of threatening to, threatening to leave you is, is a pretty good wake up call for, you know, for someone who needs to kind of uh, become aware of, uh, of their behavior. And, um, and now, you know, I guess you, yeah, you get to, you get to sort of pay her back. But then, as you've said, um, we're getting so, we've been so dark this whole time. I didn't intend for it to be this way, but, um, <laughs> I'm but I'm sorry, no, I apologize not, for that. Man, it it's, probably, not it's, it's not, man, it's not your fault. It's just
1: my life in general. You know, I, I was going to share something with you. I was actually, we were at a cocktail party a couple of years ago and there was a guy there, a curator there who was, you know, he just kind of asked me the boo, so where are you going next? Which country are you going to next? And I said, I don't know. And he said, okay, you know, because I want to know because I want to make sure that I avoid going to that place because it <laughs> seems like everywhere you'd go, yeah. someone dies or is killed. like in Cuba, you know, it was there when Fidel Castro died. Yeah, and did this that's true.
0: There that. could be a pattern anyway. there. No, but but the the sort of um, well, the, I mean, the lovely the 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 lovely positive is as you've said, you you have a, a new daughter, um, so that's something yeah. incredibly uh, uh, beautiful to to sort of focus on, and and I guess that must in some senses uh, take you out of your yourself. I mean, in terms of your own kind of journey to recovery, what what's proved to be the most sort of beneficial and useful thing, do you think? I mean, because, you know, they're talking about, um, you probably know this, but they're talking a lot about using uh, psychedelics or, or they're experimenting with psychedelics as, as you know, treatment to PTSD. Um, I don't know if you had any experience with that, but I'm just wondering what sort of stuff has, you know, has been useful.
1: Yeah, I've had quite a bit of experience with that. Mm. It's um it's become, in a in a way, I've kind of become a, not a part-time, I would say, an occasional psycho not mm. because of that it's really um but that's un- yeah, with the unofficial PTSD journey with the modalities sorry
0: that's a sort of on an unofficial uh, basis you're not actually yeah. being kind of under no. any sort of therapeutic care for in that respect you're experimenting yourself. no so through these um
1: you know as i went on this this uh journey to sort of heal my ptsd i tried like a number of things and eventually you know it something it kind of felt like everything was helping a little bit, but nothing was really getting me up over the cliff face. It was, and it was really at a point to where, uh, Laura, my partner was essentially giving me this, you know, like a certain amount of months before, you know, this whole thing was going to collapse because she was over it. And I was also over it too, because I wasn't in control of myself. I wasn't. And, um, so, I found out about the, the you know, the PGSE f- um, psychedelic healing, and it was hard to find someone because it's still illegal, it's underground, uh, depending on where you live, but eventually I found someone here in LA who was a physician, and he had worked at the VA with special ops veterans, and uh, he was a researcher, had written a bunch of papers, and it's also interesting, he... he he came from a religious. He was a former um, minister and uh, had been transformed by this world. And um, so I went to his house and I did a full day of just psychedelics, um, mushrooms, and MDMA and ketamine and five meo DMT. And it was basically like a breakthrough day where I broke through a barrier and you know, for lack of a better phrase, fell into the fabric of the universe and I was allowed to see myself and to see life in a way that I'd never seen it before. And I returned, I did more sessions and, um, and eventually be, you know, began like self administering, um, with certain, I, you know, I can say medicines, uh, because they are, if you use them in the right way. Um and and yeah they they really helped shift it yeah shift everything. That's um, amazing. And they helped me get into the body because, um, you know, really anyway, I've always been a very heady person, mm-hmm. and trauma is really stored in the body, and it's really about breaking into those energies and allowing yourself to witness them and allowing them to be, and so. You can be conscious of them, and so you can work through them and, um, you know, cry them out and let them out energetically. Mm. Mm. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Yeah, they were it? fair. yeah I yeah. mean, it's clearly the people who, who have a lot of kind of faith in in that uh, route to, to recovery are, you know, yeah, I mean, the serious researchers and people who really understand it, who, you know, pretty much seeing it as... Um, you know, I, I guess almost a wonder drug, you know, a, a solution that is, you know, really uh, unarguable. But anyway, yeah, it's it's something I guess it's a lot of people are, are currently looking into. So with the podcast, let's get back to where we started, because I want to I want to sort of yeah. wrap it up. And then we're gonna we're gonna do the bonus questions. But um, what what are your hopes for that because it, as you say i think i think you're going to be good at it you're because um, you are a very sort of reflective and uh person and you you're a person who does think kind of deeply about these things and you seem to want to have conversations uh, to have meaningful discourse as i think you might have put it and um yeah i'm just wondering about um yeah, how how you think that the podcast is going to help in that way? I, I like the, your description of mm. of perhaps yourself or or people who are like minded as connectors. I'm, I'm wondering what how you kind of defining that or what that means to you that word.
1: Yeah, that word, uh, you know that 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 actually came out of a ceremony. That was an ayahuasca ceremony where I sort of had this, you know, realization and not that it's a new realization but a conscious understanding of my role in the world as it sits which is that you know if I give myself a label I could say that I'm a photographer but that's not really who I am and what I do I use a camera to you know connect people you know to show the world what it looks like in a place or what's happening in a place and you know it's humanizing people it's creating an understanding it's making a connection between what we read in the news and what we've heard about and what, what is actually there. And it's a very, um, you know, I began to understand my role in a new way and what I do in a new way. And when I think about it like that, that what I do is, is I work as a connector. It's not just about photography. It's about, writing it's about communicating it's about say having a podcast um one of the the second episode of the podcast coming up is with with um a colleague who um his name is afshan ismaili and he he grew up in a war zone in uh the kurdish region between iraq and iran and you know it's the story of his life he's covered war but he he is you know the child of a Soldier, and um, and so it's about bringing that into the world because I do have a special access in the sense that that a lot of these people I want to speak with are are colleagues of mine, you know, and friends of mine who have shared very similar experiences, and so I think that's 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 what I hope to sort of reveal is just this new, you know, an insider view in certain in certain ways, but then also just you know, as a place where people can learn from our experiences or have, you know, an understanding of what, of what that is about, you know, and also share some of the things that I've, you know, that I've learned in recent years, just about health. And, uh, so I also, I have one, I have an episode with, with a friend of mine who's, um, who does medical massage and I've gotten like a number of massages from him, but he's also into Ayurveda. And so, you know, we go into ways that, um, uh, ways that, uh, we can help, you know, come down from, from having these crazy wild experiences around the world ways that when, you know, when we come home, we can make sure that we're really coming home and not just like home. And so we can prepare for the next trip, but really coming back into the center, um, and really grounding ourselves and so hmm. yeah
0: well i look forward to hearing it and um thank you for talking to me michael yeah
1: of course no thank you it's my honor